Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey nerds, welcome to a bonus Saturday episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. I am so, so very excited for you to hear this conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning playwright and author Chiara Alegria Hudis. Uh, Chiara wrote a memoir called My Broken Language, which came out uh, recently in April of this year, uh, depicting her life or not depicting, rather telling the story of her life so far and the family that she was brought up in and the feelings that coming from this very, very uh, diverse family, like the feelings that it created in her and the language that it created within herself. Uh, Kiara is a playwright who, and I mentioned she's a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. She's also the co-creator of In the Heights, which is why I am having this come out this weekend, because In the Heights comes out this weekend. She created that with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, but this book is not about In the Heights. This book is about the family that Kiara comes from, uh, most specifically the women in her family. Uh, and this conversation, it was really, really wonderful because we talked a lot about like the concept of what makes up a story you know what is the importance of a protagonist um, you know, a lot of the work that she does um, there's a lot of people that are in each of her plays and um, you'll understand why when you learn about the family that Kiara comes from uh, it's just really delightful we also talk a lot about the books that we are given as children throughout high school and school and like the importance of classical literature versus providing you know newer stuff for for children to read and this is really really I her life is fascinating and I was so gracious because as you can imagine as the co-creator of In the Heights she is currently having just an absolutely crazy hectic schedule so the fact that she took an hour to speak with me last week really meant a lot uh at this point when this comes out on Saturday I probably will have watched In the Heights already and I hope you have as well and if you haven't uh, I highly recommend going to to check that out as soon as you can. Um, but also, I can't speak highly enough of Kara's memoir, My Broken Language. Um, if you're an audiobook fan, she does the audiobook as well. So you can listen to her tell her own story. Um, just phenomenal all around. Um, a couple quick reminders. Next week, we are doing, on the 17th, we are doing a live uh, conversation with Kate Moore about her new book, The Woman They Could Not Silence. You can sign up for that by going to overdrive.com. There's a link right there. Um, you can, of course, get the Libby Pride t-shirts at shop.overdrive.com. Um, and yeah, if you're a library fan, if you're one of our library friends, be sure to register for Digipalooza, where Jill and I will be interviewing Andy Weir. All sorts of fun stuff happening. Um, but right now, if you're listening to this on the weekend or in the middle of the week or whenever you happen to be listening to it, you're in for a treat because Kiara is an absolutely 
delightful human being. And I am again just so thankful that you took the time to chat with me. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Yeah. Okay. Well, like I said, we can just kind of kick it off. And we always love starting our episodes at the very top by having you, the author, introduce your book. So do you want to tell everyone just a little bit about My Broken Language? And then I will dive into a bunch of nerdy questions I have for you. Sure. I mean, in some ways, My Broken Language is about, it's about my pathway to find language as a child um, who will one day become a writing woman. Um, In other ways, it's about my path navigating a very matriarchal family and all these different matriarchal inheritances I kind of that fall in my lap and that I um, get to use and get to explore and find my own truth within. Um, So even looking at those two things alone, it, it starts with me talking about how on the language front, my name, I discover I love my name until I go into kindergarten roll call and then I discover, oh no, my name is a problem, Kiara Alegria Hudes. Yeah. Even the I have two U's in my name and they follow totally different language rules. And <laughs> so all of a sudden I have this conundrum of like, how do I craft a narrative that kind yeah. of kind of live up to my name? Um and on the matriarchal thing, I, I talk about early in the book, um, my mom coming to me and telling me of this spiritual gift she has. Mm-hmm. Um, this second sight that really affected her childhood in Puerto Rico. And she's, she's telling me as a young child, because she just wants me to be aware that if I should see anything I don't understand, um, that I don't need to be afraid that I can tell her about it. Mm -hmm. So that's what kind of launches the book, me facing these two things that feel bigger than I can kind of handle as a child. Um, And then it's my path through artistry and through being a young mixed race Latina in the eighties and nineties in Philly until I start writing. Yeah. I, so I have so many questions about the the writing. I have big thoughts about like you talk about in the book, all the different playwrights and, and authors and things that like a lot of your classmates at at Yale had read that you hadn't. And I have lots of thoughts on that that I want to talk about, but like the first thing I want to ask, like, anyone who is familiar with your work or has, you know, seen you do interviews or anything, they know that a lot of your plays, they, and you mentioned this in the book, like they do come from moments in your life, from characters in your life, from people, you know, these matriarchs in your life, these, um, like you kind of the pantheon of women that you have in your, in your family. And you kind of take these little moments and they maybe become mm-hmm. an inspiration for one of your plays. But being that this story was obviously so extremely personal because it's literally your life like did this feel different than writing one of those stories even if those those plays are based off of a thing that's happened about you know to you or that you were a part of like did this feel different i think i felt less careful with myself um mm-hmm. in the past when i've written plays inspired by you know my cousin or my aunt Ginny or um my uncle george these are, and they're fictional plays, but I interviewed them and and there's a care I take with a loved one's narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to humiliate them. I don't want to embarrass them. I want to dig into the complexities of their life as a person um, in this nation. With myself, I didn't feel that same sense of protectiveness. And Mm -hmm. I was a little bit worried about um, 
you know, was I going to come off as self-aggrandizing? So I think I, I was really consciously tried to critique uh, myself a little bit more harshly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, look, I'm also throwing praise my way about, you know, times I was able to kind of celebrate life in a great way. But um, I do also talk about my complicity mm -hmm. uh, in terms of throwing shade towards people I love whose society was already throwing shade towards, you know, I'm a, I'm a mixed race Latina. Um, I, I kind of think of myself as having a brown Boricua heritage and a white Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. um, and so once my parents separated, I found myself, my life from the time I was seven years old or so, um, became segregated. It hadn't mm. been up until then, but all of a sudden I had a white life and I had a brown Boricua life and mm. there was very little overlap in those two spaces. And um, so, you know, in the book, I do try to look at myself really critically. And sometimes mm -hmm. when I was complicit um, through silence in some of those white spaces, when I could have stood up for my brown relatives um, and my brown community in ways that I guess I was too scared to or too upset to. Mm -hmm. I was a child. I was still figuring this stuff out. Yeah, I, that, that that was what I was going to ask. Like, do you feel like you, you know, having written the story, you know, this this memoir now, do you feel like being able to look back? I mean, we all always can look back, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, like everyone always says. But do you think you're able to be more? You were able to be more honest with your own story and like more kind of like blunt and I don't want to say harsh but like mm -hmm. more open and honest about your life now looking back than you know perhaps any like I guess like is did, did now feel like the right time like do you think you could have written this particular book earlier in your career or do you think you needed to have this kind of clarity of of looking back on everything I definitely couldn't have written this at any point prior for yeah. one thing I mean I think with hindsight I can I am protective of the little girl I was too. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I can, with maturity, hold space to be both critical of her and protective of her. Mm -hmm. um, but also the other big, big, big component is that, you know, I had no, I had very little context for beyond my mother's direct teachings for what is Boricua existence? Yeah, you know, and and because you know, school is where we we went to learn about everyone but ourselves. Mm -hmm. So really, my education beyond my mother's and my family's direct teachings, my education in Boricua literature, in history, and culture had to begin when I was done my formal schooling. I finally had time and interest to say, okay, now I'm going to learn about my history, mm -hmm. and so that context is crucial in terms of me looking back and understanding some of the broader implications of what I was living. You know, there's one chapter about language shame, right? Cause I, I grew up in a, with a different mother tongue than my mom, than my abuela. I grew up in English, they grew up in Spanish um, and we're all bilingual to varying extents, but um, I don't think in Spanish. I don't dream in Spanish. Yeah. Um, and there's a chapter in which I, I discuss actual the actual history of language on the mm -hmm. island of Boricuan, on the island of Puerto Rico. Um, I, I used to be ashamed of my Spanish, and but learning more about the history of colonialism and and how that affected language on the island, I didn't learn about 
educate myself in those things till I was an adult. And that, that really helped me understand my childhood with more clarity. That's so interesting. And not only that, like you were talking about, we all go to school to learn about different people. Like I, I have a big, you know, being a book nerd, my dog is behind me trying to get comfortable. Of course, like I just, I told you he'd be laying down the whole time and now he's like trying to get comfortable. Um, I, because of how in, in the book world, in the literary world I am, I am always so angry about how I, like, I'm not angry, I, but I'm always like questioning about, I remember growing up and like, I was in advanced lit classes and like, yes, I think everyone should read like Chaucer and Voltaire if they're going to be in that world. But, like, I also hope, I think about my niece, she's getting ready to go to high school. She's the oldest one in the, in the family of the nieces and nephews. Like, yes, I hope she reads Of Mice and Men and I hope she reads, you know, some Hemingway, but I also hope, you know, she reads Angie Thomas and, you know, like Jason Reynolds and these people who are more modern, in my mind, titans of literature now, they just happen to be alive. And like, I, I think the fact that you proceeded to do all of the studying of your own language and your own culture, like speaks to you and your interest in in literature and storytelling because I know a lot of people if they're given that those other types of stories that are very different than them they won't continue to do that exploration afterwards if that makes sense yeah you know I I kind of have this fantasy it's a very short passage in the book but I fantasize about a library that's literally just full of our narratives and what it would be to for my little sister, for my younger cousins to walk into a library and assume mm-hmm. that the vast majority of the stories were going to be immediately relevant to their own experience, to yeah. their own inheritance. Um, it's a fantasy, but you know, I'm trying to, uh, you know, make, I'm trying to put some books on those shelves. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and I get that for sure. I, like I said, I just, I think more, I feel like more young students would continue being interested in literature and in plays and in theater and in like all of like the kind of storytelling world if we gave them things that you know we thought they might like or you know my mom was a teacher so like I was very fortunate where she was a caring teacher like we would go to a bookstore and she'd be like what do you want to read about yeah and so like yes I would read like I, I grew up in Lorraine, Ohio. So I guess we read Toni Morrison, but you know, I would also read like the Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein, And yeah, you know, I would read, like I had, there were some people who passed away early in my life and like, they gave me chicken soup for the soul. Like these books, you know, that <laughs> yeah. they, they made me want to keep reading because yes, in class I would read, um, you know, Hills like white elephants and not understand it. But then I would go home and I would read something that I loved and I don't know. I, I just have been thinking so much about that, especially like you talk about, I love the part where you're at Yale and you were talking about these classmates who not only had they read these playwrights that you hadn't yet read, but they had read them to such an extent where they actually already like loathed and hated them in a way. Right, and right. they were ironic <laughs> about it or something that, yeah. Yeah. They were like, and they like, they were angry about these ways. And you're like, I haven't even read these people. And I don't know. I just, like how they already had like openly open disdain like it just made me think about the importance or lack thereof importance of like classic literature versus like focusing on what people find enjoyment out of I don't know I yeah I, think I, I love that classics is like we're, we're surrounded in 
in future classics right now. Mm -hmm. They're just not classics yet, but we, we have to do the work of finding them and of getting to them, getting them to audiences who might not get them directly. You know, I, my mother used to buy me books and, um, in high school, two of the books that were really important that she bought me, one was called Lakota woman by Mary Crow dog. Mm -hmm. um, I did not know until that time. And my mother does have um, native uh, Boricua lineage. I didn't know that there were Native American authors. How was I to know? There was yeah. never a single anything like that assigned in any of my schools. Um, and then the other one was when I was Puerto Rican by Esmeralda Santiago. Again, mm -hmm. I, I didn't know there were Boricua authors, um, especially writing in English. Uh, you know, so I, I kind of fell into the the cracks there of mm -hmm. um, what was being assigned. Um, the only woman of color I was assigned my entire Philadelphia public school education was Zora Neale Hurston. One, yeah. you know, their eyes were watching God in 10th grade. And you know what, like looking back on that, the way she used language and sensuality mm -hmm. was unlike anything else in high school. And that was just, it was like, a, you know, a little token read. Mm -hmm. She was really interested in the musicality of language. She was really interested in how people's bodies connected in a way that I, I reflect on as profoundly female. Mm -hmm. um, but this was few and far between. Yeah, I, I, I think the one that stuck out with me a lot was um, a lesson before dying by Ernest Gaines. I don't know. Did you ever, did you ever get a chance to read that one? No, no. So it's um, this story and it's been a long time since I read it, but it's the story of this man on this African American man on death row and this person who's going to visit them. And like, it's very much implied that he's innocent the whole time. Mm. And he was, you know, wrongfully convicted and they just wanted, it was in the South and, you know, they wanted to blame a black guy for a thing that didn't actually happen and they blamed him. And, but it was one of those books where, as I was reading it, I remember like for the first time, I think it might've been 16 or 17, but like being so overtly confronted, not only with like racism and, and how horrible our country can be and tends to be, but like just this man wrestling with the like acceptance of he's going to die and there's nothing he can do about it and like the emotions of life and like I had experienced tragedy yeah throughout my life but I hadn't I hadn't had I hadn't seen a, a book that was just like I'm going to die and here's how that makes me feel and it, unfortunately like you said even when I was in high school I, I had a wonderful experience but it was the same thing like it was few and far between about seeing authors and and plays that admittedly didn't look like me i mean i'm a white straight male and mm -hmm. i i know that i have been born into a ton of privilege and so i didn't always i didn't ever have to think like if we read princess bride like in my mind like of, of course the main character is white because i am white like mm -hmm. so it is but it, those unfortunately are few and far between but i think you can tell like you said when a book or a story is going to hit differently yeah you know i love hearing you you say that that assumption about what a main character looks like mm -hmm. because you know i i had that assumption too and mm -hmm. um you know when i began this kind of playwriting project that is my life um it was with this real excitement of like well wait a second what can 
a quote unquote hero look like? What mm -hmm. can a protagonist look like? Who gets to hold center stage? And also because all of my works are ensemble works, they're mm -hmm. community works, like even challenging the notion that a protagonist is the most kind of important way to yeah. tell a story. But what about the community as a protagonist? What about, you know, that's what someone asked me about the memoir why is your memoir not just about you? Why is it about so many other people? I was like, well, there's, I have a revelation at one point in my, in my twenties, which is in the book, which is, you know, from the time I was five, my mom told me she has a, a very, um, I mean, I call her a spiritual genius. She has a very uncommon relationship with the spirit world. Mm -hmm. And I, that puts me on a path to look for what is my relationship with the spirit world? Cause I know I don't have her gift. And my answer comes in my early 20s when I'm studying, <laughs> when I'm trying to get an MFA at Brown. And I have this revelation that my cousins are that of God within me, Yeah, you know, and that launched me on a path of writing in which I, I don't think even of myself alone as the protagonist of my own story. I think about the web that connects me to other people. Well, yeah. And then when people read My Broken Language, they, they'll, to, that flows through every chapter like I just I love where I don't know I, I just love how you have all of these stories where like yes you're a part of the story but like when you guys are all driving to um you know it's like a theme park I almost said Cedar Point and in, in Ohio yeah. there's, a, there's a very famous one called Cedar Point so like in my brain yeah, if it's yeah. not Disney it's Cedar Point it's six flags in Jersey in, in my book yeah yeah exactly and it's just like the way that you bring all your cousins to life and like I also felt I'm, I've come from a, a big family and I have a ton of older cousins. And I remember like that feeling where you're talking about, like, they're like, they're the big kids. Like they, they're the, <laughs> they're the I think they were probably like 18 at the time, but they're like, yeah. they're the adults in the room. And like, you bring them to life in such a way where you're like, I looked up to them. And to me, it makes sense to, you know, when looking at all of your works, like, yeah, they should be ensemble because that's you come from an ensemble like you I do come from I totally come from an ensemble and I, yeah. I, the stories I heard even even the stories I heard had a kind of ensemble voice you know I guess in in like you think about something like a Greek chorus and it's an ensemble speaking in unison right mm -hmm. but that was not the case with my life like if I asked why did our family leave Puerto Rico in the 60s in the same kitchen I get I hear three ideas that are in complete conflict with one mm -hmm. another <laughs> and they're fighting that is not why we left it's because of this reason and i i discuss all those three reasons in the book mm -hmm. so even my even the kind of greek chorus of my life uh they're not speaking in unison they're yeah. speaking in contradiction that is a language that it's actually that kind of complex space of truth and contradiction mm -hmm. is where is a place where my heart feels most at home and the reason that i have trouble with that is because this nation <laughs> doesn't embrace complication extremely well. You know, we want yeah. simple answers and kind of marketable sound bites. But, um, you know, speaking to that ensemble and to that cousin scene, you know, I, I discuss in the book how my parents' separation was, um, it, it changed me forever. I was very young when it happened, but I kind of disassociated and got depressed and became disembodied as a child. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't like, I remember my body so vividly up until I was about five. And mm -hmm. then it's just like, I'm just a brain with no body, you know, yeah. and that it's actually through 
in my late adolescence through my relationship with my little sister, as my cousins are kind of like touching me into being, even as my mother who is a priest is giving me spiritual lukumi cleansing baths, they restored my body mm-hmm. to its present tense. These, these family members and specifically women around me who were always in physical contact with me, even if it's because we're squeezed into the backseat of, you know, the, what we call a hoopty in Philly, like trying mm-hmm. to get to Six Flags without the car breaking down, you know, um, or if it's that my sister who's 13 years younger than me is just always on my hip. Mm-hmm. You know, she was my baby, or if it's that my mother is cleansing me with a bath and then um, helping me pull the flower petals that were part of the mm-hmm. bath out of my hair, you know, that they, they kind of touched me back into being. Uh, I'll tell you what, that the physical contact of family, I, <laughs> that hits differently right now, especially because like recently, you know, when my whole family um, finally got both of our shots fully vaccinated, like. I got to hug my three siblings and oof, that family touch that like, you don't realize how much you missed it, especially over the past year and a half we've had. Like, yeah, that was like a different kind of emotion where you're like, oh my God, I missed this. Like I missed being in the same space with you. I missed embracing each other. And like, that's, I don't know. It plays such a pivotal part. I feel like the interaction, both physical and and you know like emotionally with your family members really does help shape how you think about them moving forward um i had a an uncle i had a grandfather who who passed away when i was pretty young and like i've kind of always idolized the idea of him and when i got a little bit older my mom was fine like you know grandpa was kind of an asshole i was like i was like what what are you talking about he's like yeah he wasn't the best dude you just he passed away when you were 11 so the only versions of him you remember is like even still like holding his giant like like calloused hand or like mm-hmm. the smell of him and like I still remember those physical aspects of him mm-hmm. and how like as a positivity but then like I'll think of my you know aunts and uncles and cousins who I've known much later in my life and I won't think as highly of them even though they're probably much better people because <laughs> of the experiences I've had with them but yeah like that this is all just to say like that physical contacts with family members it I think it shapes us so much, like who we become and how we feel about our own body. One of the things I write about in the book is, um, you know, this kind of darker aspect of the 80s and 90s, that it was a time of tremendous suffering and loss in the community. Um, You know, we were really hit hard by um, the crack cocaine epidemic, by the AIDS epidemic, um, by the war on drugs and gun violence. And I, some of, you know, I lost too many cousins that were in their 20s. Um, they were older cousins because I was the youngest of the generation. Um, you know, I lost them before they had a chance to be flawed adults. Yeah. You no, know, they were still freaking awesome young people. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish I had a chance to know them into their 30s and 40s and get to know their flaws more. You know, they were frozen in time as these remarkable um, kind of sources of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to your writing, I'm, I'm curious because you, you've you written, you have such, you know, a wide scope of work at this point in your career. Like, Can you feel when a story or a play or a piece that you're writing is kind of like hitting different, like, did water by the spoonful or in the heights feel like momentous to you while you were putting them together? Or does everything kind of feel the same when you're drafting it out? Like, 
this story feels impactful to me internally, but I have no idea what the outside world is going to, how they're going to approach it. Like, can you sort of tell when something feels like it might strike a, a chord with a lot of people out in the world? Not really. I can feel when something's, I can feel levels of how it strikes chords within myself. Mm. Um, I get really scared of the outside world. Um, I, you know, I'm so grateful to have uh, readers to have audience members. So it's not that I disdain them quite the opposite. I'm just beyond grateful for anyone who kind of grapples with my work, but while I'm writing, it freaks me out and yeah. I have to forget that that's going to happen. And I have to consider basically myself, the audience and, mm. and trust my own interests and instincts. Um, something, and each piece feels different. I, I don't, each piece doesn't feel the same at yeah. all, you know, with water by the spoonful, which is a play I wrote that is set in an online chat room for recovering addicts. Yeah. I had wanted to, because um, drugs had affected my family so directly, I had wanted to write about it for a really long time, but I was very nervous to create roles for like drug addicts because it's just such, it's already so misrepresented in mass culture yeah. and in popular culture. So when I realized, oh, I can write about recovery, that's a mm -hmm. role I, I don't have qualms about creating. Um, when I found these online recovery rooms, this is, I was doing this work in 2009. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew I had tapped into just an extraordinary language community. I mean, yeah. they weren't gathering for language. They were gathering to like stay clean and sober one day at a time right. support each other in this endeavor. But, um, the way they used language to kind of make fun of themselves, to have a sense of humor um, mm -hmm. through hard times. I, I knew I, I was their audience first yeah. and they inspired me and I knew I had tapped into something very special. So I just had to kind of honor that in my own writing about them. Um, and that each piece has its own different thing. For, for my broken language, there were parts of it I remember writing that, um, I could feel the discovery. It's not like, oh, I knew everything about myself and then I wrote it down. No, yeah. you learn more about yourself as you're in the process of really interrogating, well, what was that? Mm -hmm. um, and there were a few moments of writing when the discovery felt so alive. Um, one of those chapters is I, I have a piece about talking about my mom's accent and, yeah. um, you know, she, Spanish is her first language. She started learning English at 11. So she still has a fairly thick and beautiful um, language accent when she speaks English. And I started to, you know, it's about how I used to tease her and mm -hmm. correct her lovingly as, as a child, but still like, who the hell was I? Yeah. And then realizing now with hindsight, this is her English language. Yeah. She earned it in a way I never had to. Mm -hmm. And just to have that that change of point of view it was so freeing i'm like mom thank you for for giving me this language mm -hmm. you know so speaking of that because of so much of the work that you put out into the world does have that personal connection to you when you work like something work on something like in the heights where the story if you talk about how you know it was the the story is similar to your neighborhood to your barrio but does it feel different or is it working a different muscle to write words and stories for these characters that 
at least somewhat already exists. You know, I know you absolutely put a ton of like new aspects in there, but I mean, when, you know, the first time you met Lynn, like there was at least some story already there. Like, does it feel different working in a framework that might already exist versus creating something completely from scratch in your own mind? Yeah, so I met Lynn in 2004 to start working on In the Heights with him. And um, he uh, he had already written a full length script and had a full score. So he, yeah. and he was looking for a playwright. I was like, well, what do you want me to do? Yeah. This piece is pretty cool. Like, I don't know what my role would be. <laughs> and he was honestly like, I don't know either, but he just knew he had reached his kind of limit of how far he could develop the piece. And he mm -hmm. wanted a playwright involved. And it was a really different task than mm -hmm. anything I had done before because it felt like rebuilding a building, but one brick at a time, as yeah. opposed to when I'm just starting from scratch, I dig a foundation. I, you know, fill in the foundation. I start to buttress up the, you know, the scaffolding and you hit bumps on the way. You, you, you come to spaces where the engineering plan doesn't work and then you have to improvise and find creative solutions. like. It really is starting from scratch with this. It was like, okay, let's take out this brick and put in another brick. Yeah. Now what's the next brick we need to go to? And then by the time we opened on Broadway, we essentially had a, an entirely new building yeah. been created in a different way. When, when I got hired to write the screenplay, I said to Lynn, can I have the time writing the screenplay that I never had, which is just me time. Like yeah. he had a few years of writing in the Heights before I came on board. I was like, let me have that time. Give me six months. And he was like, okay. Like he kind of got it and was yeah. really happy. He had a lot of trust in me. And um, so I finally felt like I got to dig a foundation in some ways for mm -hmm. the project. Well, yeah, cause I think I, think I saw like an older video when you were talking about how when you initially started working together, it was like, you would go write a scene but you'd have like a night and then you'd come back and you'd show it to him and the next day he'd like turn that into a song or like you'd turn his yeah. song into like a a scene and so it was like I it's almost I felt I could like feel like how I am with my siblings or it's like that like kind of like like fun interaction but also like the like subtle bickering and stuff but like I have to <laughs> like I have to imagine exactly what you said like taking those those six months to turn you know to, to write the screenplay but I know when it comes to a production, like in the Heights, like there's, you know, there's previews and there's off-Broadway and there's on-Broadway and there's all these different parts of it. How do you know, or I guess, do you ever know when to kind of stop tinkering with something and when to just say, put a bow on it, let's push it out in the world? Because I feel like the same thing could be said about your memoir, because your memoir starts ends at a certain point where like I imagine you could have written probably like a part two of it <laughs> like how do you do you ever feel like you're 100% certain when you're going to stop tinkering with something or is it like at a certain point you're just like rip off the band-aid we have to move on yeah it's really about deadlines I mean with you know in the heights was done when we you know when the show was frozen and critics had to come and you <laughs> yeah, rehearsal time so you can't rehearse any new changes like that's yeah, it that's when it's quote unquote done it was nice to have another go around with uh with the screenplay with the book um i think that was a little bit more subtle because you're not dealing with rehearsal schedules you're not dealing with like union you know actors you're just dealing with pages and i think i did have a sense of completion about it um i thought 
okay, I've, I think I've set, told the story I, I want to tell um, mm-hmm. in, in the creative way I want to tell it. And my editor, Chris Jackson, who's a really um, gifted reader and intellect intellectual, he, um, he also kind of helped say, yeah, I think this is, I think this is the book. Mm-hmm. What was the most challenging part of writing the memoir for you? Um, <laughs> I know that's a loaded question. I'm sorry. The whole thing. <laughs> to be honest, I, when I started writing the memoir, I went, this is like too much information, but here we are. Um, I, I went back to therapy, which I hadn't been to since a child. Mm-hmm. And I said to my therapist, I want to write about, I had this formative experience where when I was a child, my older cousins, I, I had some older cousins I was really close with who passed away. Mm-hmm. And it really upset me. And I think kind of formed my entire worldview, but I never cried about it. That's where, that was like the first 30 seconds of conversation with my therapist. And I think revisiting those um, as an adult, when I didn't have to protect myself as much as a child has to protect herself, um, Mm -hmm. to say, you know, to to kind of, I I don't know if if crying is the right word, but to, to be more, to reinvestigate those deaths and those losses mm-hmm. um, from an open place again, it's hard. It was hard remembering my cousin Pico, who I loved so much. He was amazing, you know, and he was gay and he wasn't out, um, you know, and I never discussed his sexuality with him, but it was, it was also clear. It was like mm-hmm. a, a clear thing. And then he disappeared and we, we were so close and to discover that he had, you know, tested positive for HIV, did not want to come out to the family, fled to New York and died alone. Yeah. I didn't know what to do with that as a child. That was devastating. And mm-hmm. uh, again, like this is part of me becoming a disembodied person to remember Tico, to remember how we played together, to remember the silence even surrounding him and that that silence might have contributed to you know his fleeing and his shame like to go mm-hmm. back into those spaces that was the hardest part of writing the memoir yeah that exactly what you said about your reaction as a kid when i was um i think it was 10 my best friend's dad had a stroke and passed away and like we were the only two in the room with him when it happened and it was like very unexpected obviously and it was one of those things where like I can remember that day like beat by beat I could literally write I feel like like a screenplay that's like Mm -hmm. minute one minute two minute three here's exactly what happens and I specifically remember like throughout the funeral through the wake throughout everything my my best friend Kurt he didn't cry like he didn't cry a sing like for a moment and it really ended up like shape and like I was just like I've always been an emotional person like I was like a, a wreck as a t- as a 10 year old I am I'm 35 I almost started crying about it just now like I that's just yeah, my, that's yeah. how I get that from my mom like I could I cry at a commercial like that's just me <laughs> but like he never cried about that and like it really ended up I feel like it really shaped who he became as a teenager and who he became as an adult where like he kind of formed this protective shell around him where like he's not going to let anything affect him emotionally he's just not going to do it he's going to deflect he's going to be sarcastic about everything and like 
I could literally see it was like that moment that shaped him to yeah. become just kind of like the person he is. And he would admit it too. Like, I'm not, <laughs> Kurt, if you're listening, I'm sorry for putting you on blast. <laughs> but I, I, you know, it's one of those things where, I don't know, it is. I think it's so interesting exactly what you said about, you know, going back to therapy and, and talking about those things and realizing how they shaped who you were and like why you reacted the way you, you did. Yeah. I can imagine that was a little bit challenging. <laughs> I had to take all that armor off, you know, yeah. and I had to kind of thank it because the truth is that armor had protected me. Mm-hmm. It had, um, yeah. but I had to put it aside and just know that it was there and like mm-hmm. be a little softer going mm-hmm. back, back into those spaces. And though it was hard, it was also wonderful in my heart, spending time with Biko again and remembering. Mm-hmm. He came from Puerto Rico and, and he was learning to speak English with me. Yeah. So like we would go to West Coast Video and rent Whoopi Goldberg DVDs and rent Eddie Murphy DVDs. And like, I was far too young. They were not appropriate for me, but mm-hmm. you know, that's how he learned. I would press pause and rewind the phrase and he would you know, repeat the phrase to learn English. And yeah. just remembering those spaces of joy and play um you know to kind of give Biko his flowers you mm-hmm. know ah that's amazing so okay towards the end of our podcast we're gonna take like a hard left turn to lighthearted questions I, I told you uh-huh. at the beginning of this that like we have these lighthearted conversations and then you and I just spent like 45 minutes like just diving oh my into gosh. it totally totally <laughs> so at the end of our episodes we like to do nine questions that we call the nerd nine because I enjoy alliteration um, and these ones are much more lighthearted than, you know, what made you want to write the hard stuff in your memoir, I promise. Like, so the first one is, what's the last book you finished reading? I'm looking around my room at my bookshelf now. Um, I will also oh, accept good, what you Goodbye you're Again by Johnny Sun. What was that? I'm sorry, I cut you off. <laughs> goodbye Again by Johnny Sun. Do you have a favorite place to read? The place I remember reading the most is mm. airplane rides. I don't like flying, but every book I've read on an airplane like affects me in a much more visceral way. Yeah, something with the oxygen, I think. I, I know exactly what you mean. Um, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? Oh, when I was a kid? No, I don't think I fell in love with reading till high school. Um, mm. And it was literature. like. Flannery O'Connor, maybe like, mm. maybe it was their eyes were watching God mm. and just diving into real, real literature like that. Um, that's when I thought this is, this is for me. Yeah. Uh, what is one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet visited? <laughs> I would like to go to Sri Lanka. Um, that's yeah. a really long plane ride. So I'd have to bring some really good books and like reckon you know, reconcile with my fear of flying, for yeah. sure, but I would like to go to Sri Lanka. My husband spent um, six months there when we were teenagers, and I've always been curious to go and see it for myself. Oh, the dichotomy of, I don't really like flying, too. I want to go to Sri Lanka. is perfect. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? A favorite holiday? You know, I love Thanksgiving, but I also like my family, we renamed it family circle because I um, kind of boycott the narrative around it of like yep. the peaceful pilgrim and Native American like it's I, that really is distasteful to me. Yeah. But gathering with family on that day um, to eat and then to fall asleep because we ate too much. Mm-hmm. That's always a blessing and a joy. It's super <laughs> laid back. It's not it feels less commercial because it's not about gift giving. So that's yeah. a fave. family circle. 
I love it. Um, having read all of, of your, you know, having read your memoir and knowing all of your work, I still have to ask this though, coffee or tea? Coffee? Yeah, I, I, I know. I, we ask everybody. I got to ask the question. <laughs> uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. Do you have a favorite food? Rice and beans, baby. <laughs> and then if you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? I know that's the, that's the exact reaction. We are, we are over 550 episodes of this podcast. That is the exact reaction I get from every author every time. They're like, Adam, come on. Like, okay, come on. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Breakfast would be probably Leslie Marmon Silco. For lunch, I would, I would hang out with Beatty Tomas and for dinner, James Baldwin. Wow. Like you were waiting on that. That was beautiful. Okay. You last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from my broken language? Um, I think a reconnection to the body that they live in and all the different mm -hmm. narratives that are housed within their particular body. Yeah. Well, Kara, you, for people who are listening in, we're recording this the week before In the Heights comes out. So you uh -huh. have been so gracious with your time when, when your publicist said that you would do this. I got so, so excited. Your work has meant like so much to me. So this was just a, a, a joy for me to get to do. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It was really nice to chat about my favorite thing in the world, books. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.